recording in progress. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Regeneration Broadcast, uh, podcast broadcast. And I'm your co-host, Michael Martin. And I just see my buddy, Mike Sauter, just took a seat. How's it going, Mike? Yeah, I was setting up our guest today in a different office. And then I ran to this... Uh, it's almost like a little broom closet, so we don't have uh, feedback. It's a good friend of mine, a priest of the Most Holy Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church, Father Ed Dillon. And um, today we're going to talk about a subject, and I'll kind of seed it based on an anecdote. We're going to talk about monasticism, and the reason I brought it up with Michael uh, yesterday was <laughs> there was a... I, know <laughs> I thought it was say. funny. I know. But he Michael tweets a lot on monasticism, and in his books, for people who read his books, he it filters in and weaves in through uh, all well, of his books. I would I say. I don't but read about. Go ahead. I don't. I don't write about monasticism. I write about marriage, okay. and monasticism comes into the conversation. Excellent. No, you know that's I mean? that's a yeah, that's a great contextual. So the the text yesterday had somebody on Twitter, Father Ed. You know, somebody will post an image frequently, and um, they have comments and so forth. But somebody posted an image of a really holy, like Orthodox. I think it was Orthodox personage. I don't know if he was a saint, but the the anecdote was that this monk was born and his mom died in childbirth and that this holy man of God lived for 74 years. 83, he never, 83 years. <laughs> he, never, he never ever set eyes on a woman. So then what followed in his whole life? So what followed was all these kind of comments, kind of praising that. Wow, how holy that is and how awesome. Then I'm scrolling through and I see my good friend, Michael had contributed to the conversation with one word and one word only. And he left the word psychopath on that. So uh, how about Michael? You kind of reflect on that anecdote. Then we'll, well bring Father you know, Ed Dillon into the conversation. Uh, yeah. Well, I just, you know, you see this with like some tratty Catholics, for instance, or you see it with uh, the ortho bros uh -huh. where they, they say stuff like that. And it's absurd. I mean, it's it's crazy. You know, that's that should not be something that's celebrated. That he's I never agree. seen a woman in his whole life. I mean, that's that's a pathological state of 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 being. You know, it's and it's. I mean, one of the things I love to, to rip on in my work is the monks of Mount Athos. You know, where where feminine, uh, the feminine of the species, whatever species, is not allowed on uh, on the island. I mean, I don't know how they handle birds and insects, but apparently, you know, they can't bring a cow onto the island or a hen or a woman. And, I've definitely heard that too. Do you think it's changed? Or do we think this is still oh, the reigning? hasn't changed. No? And get this. So a friend of mine, really good friend of mine, was in the foreign service. This is probably back in the 80s, maybe early, maybe early 90s. And he wanted to go. He was he happened to be stationed in Greece. And his, they had one child, he and his wife, and she was pregnant with another. And she go, he goes, you know, I'm going to go visit Monathos. Once we're here, I might as well do it, right? So he goes over there and he gets into conversation with this monk. Who tries and and he wasn't even Orthodox, he was Catholic. And he goes over this monk's trying to talk him in to leaving his wife and children and becoming a monk. And and my my friend said, Well, that that's not right. We we can arrange it. It's it's not wouldn't be a sin for you, you know. So uh it's pathological. I mean, I don't think monasticism is pathological, but I think things like you saw yesterday on Twitter and what my friend experienced uh among Athos, that's insane. I agree. Okay, so let's let's pause here, and I'm going to bring in Father Ed Dillon. Father Ed uh, is a friend that uh, our listeners might know that on and off again, currently redoing it as a layman under a certain canon in canon law. I've I've run and now I'm running a Catholic parish. And when I began uh, in upstate New York, when I began my first foray, actually I knew Father Ed Dillon. I'd been in campus, and he was assigned to our parish in senior priest status. Um, uh, 
and uh, served the community. We became fast. People in the parish would say we drank from the same Kool-Aid. A father Ed, I would characterize as kind of an Irish wit, really intelligent guy, studied over in Rome. Father Ed, don't, don't be too brief either. Give us a little bit of your background, then kind of weave it into, you know, maybe some reflections on monasticism. You know, where, where you come from, things you think people might be interested in. I have a, a lot of trouble trying to describe my life. Uh, it doesn't really make much sense to me. Uh, but, you know, I don't worry about that. And I'm able to function <clears throat> in some place, somehow. And I've always had good friends along the way that helped me be useful. And um, I'm probably some type of a scholar because I used to read a lot. I was interested in everything that was happening. Also in the church, but not exclusively or even primarily in the church. And one of the ways I made money for uh, a few years was doing research on monasteries and telling their story. And I must have done, oh, let's be 150 monasteries in the Western world, in Europe mostly. Uh, and I would get to know the resources you have to uh, check out to do that. And I would tell the story of the monasteries, typically founded by some saint, flourished, enjoyed their flourishing state, declined, and then died. And then a couple centuries later, another zealous group took over the that monastery and uh, formed there a new monastery. And so it went on and on and on. And I'm reminded of what Chesterton said in one of his books, that the church has died at least five times. And then just when people are ready to blow the bugle over the grave, they look up, see the strange thing coming over the hill. It's really weird, but yet somehow the same. And it's the church alive and well again. And the monasteries become alive and well again. Um, and as time goes on, I have a, this is my way of viewing the history of Western church, at least, but I think the East is similar. Uh, the imperial church flourished in the fourth century when Constantine became a Christian. Already the church had taken on all the flavor, feeling, and style, and values of the Roman Empire. And so by the time of Constantine, it was just natural for the church to become the Church of the Empire. And so you have the Imperial Church, whose name is the Catholic Church. That's what Catholic Church, the Church of the Empire, especially when it became the only religion allowed. And so it, it left the Persian model of empire, which encouraged people to be faithful to their traditions, their language, their culture, their heroes, and their religion. And the Persians would even help them go home to their ruined towns and cities and build them up again. But just remember to pay your taxes a timely way to the great king of Persia. So a new and enlightened form of empire came when Persia came on. And in the book of Isaiah, second Isaiah, Cyrus the Great, we call him, is called by God, my Messiah. You are my Messiah. And you do the things I want you to do, though you know me not. About three times describes Cyrus the Great that way. For the first time, one of the kings of the world is called by God, my Messiah. So this is a new form of empire. And the, the empire that followed, not right away, but eventually, was Rome. And they were following the Persian model. They didn't care what your religion was. They encouraged you to build an altar and have a priesthood for that God of yours, as long as you pay your taxes in a timely way and respect and honor our emperor. When, it, when the empire became Christian, it became intolerant and abandoned the Persian model. 
That imperial church died in the West in the year 576, so they say. And what replaced it, and it had been replacing it for a century or more, were the monastery. The monks were the source of life and the guardians of the great tradition. And the monks created little islands of peace in the midst of chaos. When the empire disintegrated, law and order was gone. And you had roving bands of barbarians, as Gregory the Great calls them. And the one response of the church, this new church, the monastic church, to the strangers in their midst was hospitality. That's all they did. They offered hospitality. You want to live in an island of peace in the midst of this chaos, which has made you crazy? You're welcome. And you can stay as long as you want, unless you become a threat to one of the other guests. Then two of the stouter brothers will take you to the <laughs> furthest gate and point you along the way. But learn from your mistake now. Next time you're provided hospitality. So hospitality was the technique of the monks of Christianizing the world without realizing. And so that a thousand, they say, towns and cities of Europe are built around monasteries. And these towns uh, incorporated the rhythm of the monastic life, the bells ringing at dawn, at noon, and at sunset, and the feasts of the year celebrated, the festivals of the, of the monks become the festivals of the towns. And uh, it was an incredible act of civilization they did and what the English would call later regarding themselves. In a fit of absent-mindedness, they created Europe. And just like the British, in a fit of absent-mindedness, controlled the world, the seas and all the continents. Um, when you're about something else, you accomplish what you never thought of doing. Interesting. Let's hold there for a little bit. You know, where do you think, and I, we want to go back to history, and, you know, I, whenever you talk about St. Gregory the Great, but um, let's interject here again, you know, because I think you two kind of going back and forth is a great uh, education for me. And again, my contribution here is that I've worked at a month, six years or so, running the Rick the Trap in a Sea. And I can only say my experience there was very powerful, but, um, you know, they're not seeing many novices now. There, there's some interest, but, uh, you know, for them, you, you do have some of the novices could be the equivalent of these guys who, especially during COVID, you know, we're living in their parents' space. Mom might come down the stairs and say, hey, Hoosel, you know, you need to get a job. And then Hooselfred says, I think I'm called to be a monk, you know, and then that's not going to work. <laughs> they they show up, they show up at the Abbey of the Genesee, and these guys are willing to take a look at them, but it doesn't last long, right? You know, but Mike, interject again. I think there's going to be a good interplay here because uh, you and Father Ed haven't. Oh, what else do you, like, continue with your kind of analysis of monasticism vis-a-vis -vis marriage a little bit you know we'll kind of get no. this point counterpoint well i like the i mean like father had said you know the, the there's a it's it was a popular book but i thought it was really good called uh i can't remember the author's name popular author uh how the irish save civilization father ed has it memorized I think. Yeah. yeah it's thomas, a great book thomas cahill thomas cahill yeah great book and and my favorite tv show from the bbc Tudor Monastery Farm, you know, uh, and I think all the things fathers father said are true. You know, the, the monasticism through the early to early Middle Ages up until the Reformation, for sure, was the civil civilization civilizing influence on Western civilization. I don't know about the East so much, but I do know about the West. Um, I don't know what happened though. <laughs> you know, and. And not only that, but I think, you know, even if you go back and I don't think Tertullian was a monk, but where it gets weird for me is when monks started waxing uh, uh, 
theological about marriage, like uh, uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, for instance. He has, he has a multi-volume, I mean, it's huge, uh, sermons on the Song of Songs. <laughs> and it's, and it's, an, uh, it's a fascinating document of the time, but it's, a, it's a really a window into monasticism because you read it and then you read the Song of Songs. <laughs> like, to talk about the same book, isn't it about marriage? And is it uh, isn't essentially about marriage? And which is interesting to me because, and we all know, you know, the, the image of the bride and the bridegroom speaking theologically, uh, but it seems to me that somewhere along the way, and Father can tell me if, if I got this right or wrong, I think with the acquisition and the growth of power by not necessarily monasticism, but with with a, a clerical culture that was raised or nurtured in monasticism, what happens is you get, and this is, I mean, my Catholic education as a kid was, here's the highest thing you can be, boys and girls, a priest or a nun. But if that doesn't work out, maybe you can get married. And that can all, that's almost good, but you can do that, right? So you get that, that hierarchical uh, notion of uh, sacramental ways of living, right? And then accompanying with this, and I, I'm sure this is, is something that came out of monastic, uh, like Bernard on the Song of Songs, out of monastic uh, application of ideas with the idea of the Holy Family and the perpetual virginity of Mary. I mean, that's held up as to you as a kid in Catholic school. And then you realize, you realize I will never live up to this model ever. So I mean, so I don't know what where that comes from. And, and you even go back to... Uh, Tertullian in his book uh, *De Cultu Feminarum*, which is uh, on the clothing of women, and he says this, and I put it; it's in my book, um, *Sophia in Exile*. He says, "Do you not know you are e the sentence of God on this sex of yours <clears throat> lives in this age? The guilt of necessity lives too. You are the devil's gateway. You are the unsealer of that forbidden tree. You are the first deserter of the divine law. What a that's a heavy." thing to lay on you know my wife right i bet if i he said that to my wife she would probably slap him but michael has nine children father <laughs> <laughs> well you know the scriptures are not much better if you read genesis the curse to eve is just horrible i wish i could i haven't been able to see six years i wish i could read it to you uh, but you know the story right yeah oh, absolutely. Serpent, yeah where adam where are you I heard you walking in the garden, and I hid myself because I'm naked. Who told you you're naked? You've eaten then of the fruit of which I forbade you. Remember that helpmate you gave me? You thought I shouldn't be alone? Well, she said, and to the woman, he says, why did you do such a thing? And she says, the serpent tricked me, so I ate. God doesn't question the serpent. He just curses the serpent. Because you've done this. Cursed shall you be among all the beasts of the earth. On your belly you will crawl, dust you will eat. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and hers. Uh, you will strike at his heel while he crushes your head. Then, having dealt with the serpent, he goes to the woman. Because you have done this, you will bring forth children in great pain and labor. All your desire will be for a man to rule over you. So she gets cursed labor pains are the curse and the addiction to male leadership is a curse and to the man he doesn't curse adam he says cursed be the earth because of the sweat of your brow you will bring forth bread from the earth 
all the days of your life, till you return to the dust from which came. Dust and unto dust you shall return. So that's a pretty terrible story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's foundational. It's foundational to Judaism, Christianity, and probably Islam. Yeah, but how about how about this? Like the claim would be, and I'm not trying to be devil's advocate, you know, is but the um you mentioned Chesterton before. Doesn't somebody like in that Chestertonian vein usually retort that sure, you know, we had our problems and Aquinas had his issue and all that stuff, but we were still light years ahead of the other culture. You know, I'm not so sure what, what that does. But isn't, isn't that kind of the apologetics approach to, you know, what we're talking well, about? I think the apologetic approach would be it's state of the art of being human in almost any primitive culture where the male domination is taken for granted and you have to give a nice uh, pious story to show why it is so. Uh, so I think uh, it's not ahead of the others or behind the others. It is the others. I think this is the human approach to family, to life on earth, and to the human condition, you know. I, I don't know enough about other cultures. Now, there are great um, historians of culture that I have read. I've read, I tried to read success. How old are you, Father Ed? 86. Continue. Okay. Um, now, Chesterton might try to make Christianity look superior, and I think that's a healthy impulse, you know, to, a, to, a, to some extent. But also, though, I think it shouldn't turn you off from learning from all the cultures you come across, that especially if, if they still survive in spite of Christianity's dominance of the world. But the thing I love about monasticism is that it was the real church when the imperial church died of its own weight. In the West, the imperial church died in 576, the last Roman Empire, the last influence of the empire in the West. In the East, just a century later, most of the Christian great cultures, Egypt, Syria, and others, died before the onslaught of Islam. That the, the Islam wiped out the ancient churches, except for Constantinople and its empire. It's very, very diminished. But, but other than that little island, the imperial church died. Now, <laughs> I love the description of Macaulay, what, the 18th century? I think it was, a 19th. What is your Roman church but the ghost of the Roman Empire, crowned and seated among the ruins? If you look upon the Roman church as the imperial church, it had a short history and merely survives in a pathetic way. But the real church, the vital church, was the monastery. And like uh, Michael says, monastic tradition was flawed from the beginning, uh, but uh, it still housed the heart of Christianity in many respects. And especially in that one great thing, uh, hospitality. You welcome the stranger as Christ and give him the benefit of the doubt until he threatens the welfare and the life, perhaps, of another guest. And then you have to give a little distance between him and you <laughs> point him down the road. Uh, and the monks, look at what the monks achieve. Uh, it's kind of ludicrous in some respects, copying books they can't even understand. And they did a terrible job. They couldn't even copy the scriptures uh, often with any, uh, you know, when you compare it with the Jews preserving the Hebrew literature, Hebrew writings, they're done to perfection. And when you get the Dead Sea Scrolls, you find examples of Isaiah the prophet, which is almost perfect, identical with the Masoretic text, which Jews use today and when Christian Jews as the basis of their translation. And an incredibly accurate preservation of the script 
Whereas in Western, in the Christian world, the monks laboring conscientiously over texts they don't understand often, you know, did a half-assed job of preserving <laughs> it. And yet you can kind of correlate and find out what the original text might have been. And even today we have uh, three main renditions of the New Testament that have been preserved from the fourth century, approximately. Uh, the Vatican one, which is considered the best, the one from Sinai, which is uh, second, and then Alexandria, the, the third. And scholars kind of compare these three, and they still have great diversities of opinion regarding the authentic text of St. Luke or the Acts of the Apostles, some of the other books that have many variant texts. Uh, so it's really, it's like a real game to try to establish the authentic versions of even the teachings of Jesus because of the much poorer job that Christians did in preserving the sacred compared to the Jews. Uh, now, let me, let me say, too, that the, um, you know, when we look, if we go kind of the, past, the history of monasticism, kind of where it is now and maybe, you know, what could be its future, um, you know, you could have monks listening to this and saying, like, what do these guys think they're talking about? Well, I'm going to say this, is that, you know, um, I think one of the things that's kind of fallen away in modern culture, maybe since the Industrial Revolution, but we just have a, you know, a causal view of history. Everything is seen as a domino. And we're constantly reminding, you know, so the gene, the gene determines everything in the surrounding environment. And uh, working at a college, I'm kind of reminding the young people that we're always looking for, you know, an Archimedean point, a leverage. It's part of the modern mindset to see where everything else follows. But, you know, epigenetics suggests that the gene determines things outside of it. And yet the, the environment of the gene affects the genes. Uh, you smile when you're happy. And when you smile, it makes you happy. People have chosen that. And so monasteries too, I know in our own diocese at the Abbey of the Genesee, that you know, in our best, we could see that the monastery influences the surrounding environment and the surrounding environment influences the monastery. Um, we have, you know, uh, right now there's an image used for a monastery that I've heard in our diocese and it's called like a powerhouse of prayer. And I don't know, I bet you that has fructifying elements to it, but I just don't like it. It kind of is this domino effect that the monastery is a self-enclosed, you know, and from there, things just kind of flow out and influence. And what I'd like to see, I think, for the health of all of our monasteries is for everybody to step back and see kind of the, the push and pull factors, you know, that again, so many monasteries in this country are seeing an elderly population through the, and so they necessarily have to withdraw and they kind of, you know, pull in their sails a little bit. But then that leads to the deterioration of their relationships with communities. And then I think we get a snowball. But, um, you know, Michael, can you reflect on that a little bit? Or does it make you think of what you're seeing? Um, well, I, I don't know. Well, here, I, here's the thing. I, I think the what Father Ed's describing is the, the, say, the medieval model of the monastery, right? Which, which that would flow out into the, into the broader community easily. If you hit when you had a unified culture, right? Um, now we don't, and I I don't think I even knew there was such a thing as a monastery until I was about eighteen years old. You know, at least that there were still monasteries around. Um, my 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 parents brought me to one. It was actually not it was a beautiful Franciscan monastery, but even then, I mean, within in fact, my wife and I, when we first met, we would go there and we'd pray the rosary and. They closed down in about 1992 because of exactly what you were describing. They had they had a demographic winter visited upon them, and it was a beautiful place. Um, there were uh, we were at the last mass that was offered there, but you know I and this is 
you know, connected to, to a lot of things I, I, I think about in terms of distributism and how communities sh should be, be alive. And maybe Father Ed doesn't know this, but I'm a, a, a organic farmer. And uh, so, and I, and for me, small is beautiful. And I like the idea of a smaller, small communities. And then if, say there was a mon monastery, and there are a couple of monasteries, they're Orthodox, not too far from here, um, integrated into that community and that community integrated into the life of the monastery. But that's that's not what's been going on for the, for the longest time, as you just described, Mike. You know, it's, it's the idea that kind of persists. It's kind of a ghost in a way. Um, and I think, and tell me if this is true, I don't, this is just my perception from the outside, is that uh, as you mentioned, Mike, that a lot of people who are attracted to monastic life now, um, and I know, I mean, I know, I, I know some uh, women monks who are these nuns who are just lovely people. But I wonder if uh, that kind of retreat, you know, it's interesting. So a lot of people will choose that life to retreat from the life of the world, whereas the, the hospitality model, the father was talking about the medieval model that was had a more of a fructifying effect on the culture the surround the the micro culture around it right so i don't so i don't know what to do about it <laughs> you know i've got, I mean? got some thoughts you know and then father ed can reflect but again working there you know so another image is again a hospital you know i'm always writing about boy and i'll be very candid <clears> like in my writing that we almost need to recast you know, the gospel language from religious language of do something good to get to place a called held held, but cast it more in the terms of healing or almost like therapeutics. When we hear the story about a woman whose blood boy cure for them, every young person, everybody who's struggling with mental health or anxiety, you know, a person who's paralyzed of addiction and they were set free by the Christ, that monasteries could be those hospitals. I have a lot to say, like in favor of the monasteries, including the Abbey of the Genesee, you know, that at this time where we have, we're addicted to our devices, I would give retreat talks at the monastery. And, you know, it's kind of a talking point is our, you know, are the monks running from the world or are we running from, you know, monastics, meaning that, you know, most young people or most people in our culture, you know, can't sit with, you know, and just see what's arising. And so much of the practice there at the Abbey, the Jed and see is doing that, you know, asceticism, like seeing what's in me and dealing with all these demons we have, as opposed to just keeping them down and getting a full-time job. And when you don't deal with these things, think of the net effects out in the world. You have issues that you're trying to hide, so you become a workaholic that leads actually to economic despoiliation. So, you know, I'm just trying to keep everything afloat because we're not here to like, and nobody's doing it, beating up on monasteries. So I, I do agree that I don't think they're engaged with their surrounding communities enough in that way. Right now, even when I have this image that they could be a place for, you know, the local abbey offers um, confession. Suppose that's good. I'm not so sure there's any verifiable proof that monks make better than others. I know some really damn good ones. Over, mm -hmm. But, you know, there is this hope, too, that, you know, we need monasteries now just so for people who could go inward. You know, look at look at Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk making all these rockets, you know, phallic symbols everywhere. So it's a common trope that started with Dostoevsky and people pick up. The real journey is inward. You know, cast all those stupid rockets into the netherworld. We need rockets to go inside, you know, but uh, so Father Ed, you know, what, what are you hearing and what, what does it bring up in you? You're something of a poet as well as historian. You know, first of all, monasteries gave birth to new kinds of monasteries, like the Franciscans and Dominicans. These uh, orders of poor men uh, went out to people, like the Dominicans went out to preach the gospel to the people in Europe. And Francis... Uh, offered hospitality to the most despised, to lepers and to outcasts. 
So it's a new kind of monastic thing, a brotherhood that is open to the most needy of the world. And Dominicans were the intellectual, at least they wanted to free people from dangerous thinking, as they saw it. And the Franciscans were just uh, hospitality to the most despised. And uh, that, that grew a new kind of, of a monastic life. Franciscans then became third order Franciscans, people living in the world, like King Louis the Ninth, Queen, what's her name of Scotland? Margaret. Margaret. They were really uh, Franciscans who were living the ideal of using your gifts for the poor and living a simple life yourself. Uh, it infected the whole environment. And uh, then as time went on, the Reformation, in response to the Reformation, you have these great saints who reinvented pastoral ministry, but from a monastic, in a monastic way, with, with friends who would gather with them. Like St. Vincent de Paul, his life is just fantastic. But he went out to the most despised people, the poor people of Paris and prisoners, prisoners in the galleys. Uh, and his order did that. Uh, and then you had uh, Francis de Sales, a worldly man in the best sense. He befriended everyone he met, Calvinist or Catholic, on their journey and encouraged them on their journey of faith. I mean, a whole different idea of what a bishop is or, or any kind of pastoral minister. And then you have like people like Francis, what's his name in Italy, Don Bosco, who took the name Salesians for his brothers because he so admired Francis de Sales. And they took care of the deli pre-delinquent boys. They would be criminals in another two years if no one takes care of them. Uh, and Ur Ursula, what was her name? St. Ursula of Sweden? The one in Italy, Italy that took care of the uh, of the poor girls. Girls, yeah. Oh, the Ursulines. Is that I the religious I, order? Yeah. I don't. I, I do. I'm seeing. I've forgotten names of things and people. Um, so the monastic ideal was already formed in a different way, going out to the most needy of the world while remaining a Christian community. They wouldn't do this alone. No one would do it individually. You do it with the help of your friends. Uh, today's feast is St. Peter Claver. He gathered friends of his who shared his horror of slavery. And when the new slave ships came into Colombia, they would go down and work, work their way through the slave traders and these brutal people to find the, the slaves that were cast off as useless because they were so injured and they were probably dying. And they would soothe them and bathe them, get them to trust them, and feed them, and even turn cold ones that are turning cold toward death warming them and finally buying them for like two pennies because they're worthless and taking them with them. And some of them survived to be part of their community. So Peter Claver is just, a, I think he made a vow as a young person too. And he was, he vowed, promised God, he would become a slave to the slaves, the rest of his, and his brothers and others. I'm sure there were women with them who did the same thing, uh, greeting the slave ships as they came in and dealing with the discards, the refuse, even of the slaves. It was just incredible. Now, you can call him a psychopath, and he probably was, I mean, some sense of the word, but he was also a saint, you know? What he did is just out incredible, and he persevered for many years. Um, I knew a nun in Philadelphia, took the name Sister Peter Claver, lived to be 105. She was the first person to give Dorothy Day ten dollars to start the uh, catholic mm -hmm. worker a newspaper and she was with dorothy during the early days of her uh, revolution there in new york city <clears throat>
actually, I, speaking of Dorothy Day, uh, one of my best friends, uh, the godmother of my second oldest, her mother was one of those first, the first flock of Dorothy Day. And when, uh, when I met my friend, this is 30 years ago, she hired me as her gardener. And she referred me to her mom. She So she wanted me to, you know, I, I wasn't making much money. So she referred me to her mother and I would go over and she would talk about Dorothy Day and I'd go over to work. She'd say, Michael, we're not going to work today. We're just going to come in and have tea and read Dante. And, uh, <clears throat> and she was, she was, a, you know, she would tell me all these first generation stories of Dorothy Day. And I, and that's it. And Dorothy Day, the Catholic worker movement. Is that a monastic? I would think so. Yeah, you know what I mean. I mean, I know that Father Ed to college students when you know people, are, especially Rod Dreher, you know, so fond as they should be of quoting Alistair McIntyre's, you know, famous words at the end of After. You know, you you point out the trajectories we're on with ideology, the crisis about postmodernity. But he, you know, he makes a claim that we need a new and different Saint Benedict. And I remember at a mass with college students, you know, that you were thinking in real time, but and we still hope for, it. you know, maybe it is this Dorothy Day thing, who also had a great and wonderful relationship. With the Abbey of the Geneseo, well known. Uh, Father John used the abbot, uh, was in a lot of money. He stayed up oh, many times. Good. Yeah, no, it's, 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 this is a wild legacy. And Dorothy Day brings us to, you know, some conversation on the future of monism. And I think we've surfaced some themes already, you know, hospitality, just at breakfast the other day. You know, I'm, I've been newly appointed on a parish again, and Father Ed can, uh, as they say, he speaks with authority. But like the new church, let's say we're in one of Chester's uh, sixth or seventh or deaths of church, it will be formed around. <laughs> hospitality, no doubt. But uh, a couple of other things that I think for conversation, you know, I think of uh, pretty insane, talk about psychopaths, Joaquima Fiore, you know, who Dante cast him pretty low. I still love that guy with a passion. Yeah, me too. But he had a, <laughs> he had a model for a religious order that had kind of, what we're looking for, I think, is, you know, a dance. Women and men living in proximity. Um, the Gilbertines that were suppressed at the Reformation, I don't know as much about them as I want to, but it seemed to be a promising new form of monasticism that had this great dance between well, the male and the female. And Father Ed, one more thing, is that he's the one who, his professor, Father Flood, over in Rome, who had the great Franciscan poem of all time, that is, do you want to say the poem, Father Ed? St. Francis implied, though not with words, that religion is for the birds. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that great? But the same one, Mike, and it ties back to when we had, <laughs> I thought you'd love that, Michael. It's so great. It's a keeper. But uh, this same Father Flood, when we ended a conversation with our friend Tara Teak um, a few weeks ago, uh, Father Ed gave me the line that I love so much. No civilization has survived three generations of co-education. That to me, what that phrase symbolizes, and it's very fructifying, we've used that word a lot, for, is that culture newness and creativity, which is different than cleverness, which Michael skewers so well when he talks about like Disney made by committee and things. But creativity is always going to come from this kind of, you know, the polarity of the male and the, and to that end, and I don't have the details, but I think I heard stories over at the Abbey of the Genesee. There's a famous Trappist writer right now. You know, did they call him the new Thomas Merton? But his name is Michael Case, an abbot of Tarawara Abbey in Australia. And he's de definitely worth, he's great, all of his books. But in, I'm going to call it a feshrift, but in kind of an in-Trappist journal, you know, a lot of people were reflecting on the future of their order. And uh, and again, all of this is secondhand. Forgive me, any Trappist. We got a lot of Trappists. But the um, that he said, you know, in the future, almost as if down the road, we'd probably need a Trappist near a Trappist and I thought that was a wholesome striving, right? Um, it's so that there can be this kind of cross-fertilization. It's widely known in the Trappist that the Trappistines have much more 
joy in their community. When they have recreation days, they know how to go out and celebrate in nature with picnics. Or I know I'm my own Trappist won't mind me for saying this. They look to the Trappistines as models of community. But so, you know, if we move a little bit to the future of monasticism, those are some of the, the things I see from well, my experience. And plus, you know, in the... In the late Middle Ages, you know, the, the rise of the Beguines and the Begards, which they were, they were, they were not, they couldn't get sanction from the church to form their own, to, to form a new order or a new community. So they, they were kind of lay monastic orders, but without being an order. And so I think some of the most uh, beautiful mysticism of the Middle Ages came from these, like, and of course, then Marguerite Peretta was burned as a heretic, unfortunately. But uh, there were like uh, Magdeburg, uh, uh, what's her name? Hadewitch of, of Magdeburg and people like that, which I, and I quote them in, in my book at length and often. So I think, you know, I, and I think part of the attraction, I think even for modern, especially for, you know, modern disaffected people who are attracted to monastic life, it's, I would think, even more an attraction toward community. That's it. You know what I mean? Which is what we don't have any place. I mean, that's what I've been, we've been trying to create here on my farm, you know, how, and we're starved for community. And I think if you look at the middle ages, the, the community of in the late middle ages, this is after getting away from, from the, the marauding, you know, <laughs> what was the word you used, father? The barbarians. The barbarians yeah. yeah. Besides, well, we're kind of surrounded by bar Our whole culture is barbaric now. Roving um, bands of barbarians. Roving by, bands of barbarians. But <laughs> so when it got, after the mon uh, monasteries were, were settled, there was this reciprocity between those monastic, uh, um, with monasteries and the community around it, right? So the, there was community on both sides of that, and they were both parts of the same community, you know, and which we don't have at all now. Most people don't know the names of their next door neighbors. So, and I think there's a real hunger to have that. And I think, you know, when Rodrier wrote his book, The Benedict Option, I think if this is uh, fearful as the underpinning of that book was, I think, you know, one thing that's, that's sound there is that people want to be connected to something real and have, uh, have uh, their faith connected to the world and to, to what they do in the, and not just, you know, be abstracted away from reality. You know, so and I think, you know, and people come, you know, and I and I think part of the I think part of the problem was, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, is that when uh societies and cultures moved away from agrarian models and more toward urban models, that's when it all fell apart. Oh yeah. Say more, Father. Well, William Blake, you know. <clears throat> I do know. <laughs> he just he just he just epitomizes that. I mean, his description of what happened to human communities because of the industrial revolution uh, but the little villages around a church right the methodist church especially in the in our area every little hamlet is a methodist church and it's in the heart of things and so were the catholic churches of europe you know they were in the heart of, and the villages grew up around the cathedrals and the other churches and the monasteries too um but think of saint luke describing the early christian community. claims anything as his own but is shared by the whole community according to their need. Uh, I forget how he said it, but I mean, he had a great description. It's a community that shares everything, men, women, and children. And uh, that is what I've experienced myself two different times. One in Philadelphia, and I will describe it sometime if you're interested, but then another time in Rochester, where 
once we decided to take in the homeless and feed them every day, uh, the whole parish was transformed. And people came in <laughs> out of the woodwork, barely making it, barely surviving. The poorest were the most generous, and they wanted to take part in it. Men and women, young and old, uh, and it survived, and survived until it was killed by a more enlightened person. You know, when the pastor, <laughs> yeah. when the yeah. pastor leave, with the oh. help of the diocese, of course. And then in Rochester, too, a very similar thing. And in each case, the secret was a saint at the heart of it, you know, a priest that was so humble, joyful. Right. And, well, yeah. even like St. Francis, right? When uh, when St. Francis left to, cons uh, to, to save the Sultan and he came back and he saw that the monks had organized things and how he was disgusted by how opulent, opulent things were becoming. And he sat down on the floor and threw ashes on his food and he wouldn't participate anymore because, <laughs> because they, they'd sold out, right? And that's what we do again and again. And yeah. we, we choose comfort and respectability yeah. over vitality. And, and that's interesting. I mean, I think, so for me, one of the things I've been interested in is, like I said, for me, it's always connected to this issue of marriage. And, and, and I think I've written more about marriage than almost any other topic. And it's because I've been married for 30 years and I still don't understand it. <laughs> but it's a mystery. It really is. It's a, yes. it's a mystery. The central and, mystery of any culture. Yes. And, I, and it's, let's face it, the Bible starts with, with the mystery of marriage and ends with the mystery of marriage, right? So, but so what's intriguing to me and, and kind of disappointing is not, and not just monasticism, but what happens when uh, power comes to monasticism or, or monks move into positions of power, you know, and even, the, and which is, and I, I don't know what to make of this. And I think it's just a, it's a, it's the part of the human condition power corrupts. Absolutely. Um, though I love the story of, when, in fact, one of the monasteries I, I did go to as a young man, in fact, I used to go to confession there when I was a Waldorf teacher uh, at St. Bonaventure's Monastery in Detroit, is where Father Solanus had, well, he had, he, he, Father Solanus was dead before I, I was born, but my, my father is here because of Father Solanus, because my grandparents were having pr trouble in their marriage and they went to see Father Solanus. He said, oh, you gotta have another kid which was ended up being my dad. So I'm here because of Father Solana. So I used to go and thank him. Uh, but um, so the story I was going to is when, uh, so that kind of humility you see in a real saint, Father Solanus was a, definitely a real saint. Um, and then the story of St. Bonaventure, when he, when they brought him his Cardinal's hat, you know, this one, Mike, no. he's washing dishes and they go, We've, you know, this, this committee from Rome comes, you know, like, we've brought your hat for the Cardinal. Hey, thanks a lot. Just hanging on that tree, okay? I'm busy washing the dishes, yeah. and, which is why when you see the emblem of Saint Benedict, it's a cardinal's hat hung on a tree. Okay, that yeah. wonderful, right? Yeah. So that I mean, I I can live with those images, and I I love Saint Bonaventure in particular. You know. Yeah, I think that you know the key word again, community. Father Ed almost jumped out of the chair, but it's also you know that um, we had we had a youngster who Father Ed has met Hunter on last week. He was echoing in campus minutes. The first thing that hits you when you walk out the door again, it's a health crisis. But so at the microcosmic level, the college will, uh, and I can tie this to monastics, but, you know, college will say we can't hire ourselves out of this problem. But to take at the macrocosmic level, that's also a symbolic state. You can't hire yourself out of this problem because the answer to addiction, the answer to so many of these things are besetting young people is community. You know, and that's where like the AA model, how do they fight addiction? They build community, right? 
you know, they talk about the 12 steps, but really the 12 steps is about building community. And, you know, so it's almost, you know, we have this urgent, urgent sense for community. And yet community is something by nature organic. Father Ed, I mean, you study these things historically, community. I think you have a lot of reflections. You've even mentioned a one time regarding the Abbey that Father Ed's thinking in real time or having breakfast. You could just get, you know, in one of the retreat houses, maybe six guys, you know, suffering from one of these horrible imperial wars of conquest in American recent past. PTSD for maybe veterans of Afghanistan. You know, you start building around somebody like that. You know, so monasteries, Father Ed said, in the inner city, you take in the homeless. But just picture one of these old monasteries and some people, again, these young guys that might be living in their parents' basement who do yearn to connect with this, the land, that it could be founded around, you know, getting six guys who need some support. Uh, suffer maybe PTSD and all that you need to support them and you learn from them. And, you know, th- they would love to be near livestock. Father Ed, you've talked about this eloquently. I don't know where to begin. Well, you you just mentioned livestock. I, I had to check on my cows and moved them to the, <laughs> to the parish behind or to the pasture behind me. <laughs> but I think it's good to know that we have to begin again. You know, we're going to begin at the beginning. So we have to figure out where does it all begin and we'll have different uh, solutions, but I, I think if there's sanity involved in the quest, it'll come up to forming community that's grounded in the earth. What uh, Dylan Thomas calls the first spinning place. Yeah. So I mean, um, Father Ed has an appointment in a little while. You know, uh, you know, we'd like to have you back again, Father Ed. You know, I, he's got he's got a wealth of wisdom on a lot of things. But uh, you know, I think we kind of visited this in a decent way. Any concluding thoughts? I kind of like that notion. We have to begin at the beginning. We're all recognizing nobody's heard malice in our voice, but nobody's heard good rhythm. But uh, we're looking at something through a dying problem and we're looking at a beginning. And that can sound, you know, it can sound defeatist. It's not because death is a part of life, the idea. Simone Weil was always great. Truth and falsehood on a larger body of truth. Death and life on a larger body of life, capital L, and all these things, you know, and that, um, you know, that uh, the the trials and travails of Manassas subsumed in kind of a larger narrative. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the, the virtues of community, um, cooperation, you know, they're the timeless things. Concluding words from my Irish poet friends, Father Ed and Michael Mark. God bless the monks. God bless the nuns. God bless us all. On that note, uh, we want to thank everybody to listening to the Regeneration Podcast. When I sign off, I'm going to run into an office near me where Father Ed is, and I'm going to hit the stopper. Um, we will see everybody again next week. Mike, Any uh, the farm this week, what's going on? Uh, today, I have so much to do, but uh, I, I have to spin out some honey today. I harvested some honey a couple of weeks ago, and it's been sitting in my kitchen in these two giant boxes, and my, my wife keeps saying, is that stuff going to be here forever? What just, kind of cheese did you make this? Uh, I made uh, ricotta and farmer's and it's a little too cold. I mean, I really like making uh, hard cheeses, uh, but it's a little too cold in the basement right now. Mm-hmm. But I, I think in a few weeks, it'll be at the right temperature. So I'll go back to making hard cheeses. Awesome. It's You'll fun. see me keep talking for a second. Okay. And then I'm talking for a second. So anyway, yeah. So there's so much to do. On this I'm here thing. with Father Ed. All right. Tell me when he signs off, Father. Oh, I know. All We're right. all set, Michael. All right. So we'll see you next week on the Regeneration Podcast. Michael Michael Martin and Mike Sauter with Father Ed saying goodbye and have a good week. Have a good day, everybody.